Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11. We are reading verses 8 through 19. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 19. Please give your careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word. By faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God." By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And thus far the reading of God's Holy inspired word. When we read Hebrews chapter 11, we need to ask ourselves why was it written? Why did the human author of this book, and above all, the divine author of Hebrews, God Himself, include this chapter in the letter to these Hebrew Christians? I think the the audience, the recipients of this letter, there have been many little theories or explanations who they may be. I think they are Hebrew Christians uh, living in what we call the diaspora, the dispersion scattered away outside of Palestine, of Jerusalem and Judea, perhaps living in Italy, uh, in the vicinity of Rome or in other parts, and uh, far from what they would have regarded as their their homeland. Uh, And The answer to that question, why this chapter is included in the letter to these Hebrew Christians, will reveal what this portion of God's word is saying, not simply to them 2,000 years ago, but to us today. Well, let's go back just a few verses to chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. I'll summarize those verses. We read there that some of these Christians were beginning to be imprisoned. They were arrested and imprisoned. And other decisions who had not been 
arrested had to make a difficult decision to identify with them and to risk their own freedom, their own property, and perhaps even their own lives. Verse 34 of Hebrews chapter 10 tells us what happened. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is the kind of Christian life that the writer of Hebrews intends to produce in us. It is a life of faith that looks at the potentially high cost of following Jesus. And I think of religious refugees, some of whom I know personally from the country of Eritrea, but others probably known to this congregation from a large country in Central Asia, and now from Afghanistan. Uh, I think of those ones who face imprisonment or face a loss of property, perhaps even the loss of their own lives. And then they nevertheless accept that possibility joyfully, and they do what God calls them to do, to follow Christ. That's the life of faith the book of Hebrews wants to produce in all of us, even those living in the relatively comfortable places in the West here in the United States. Let me remind you of just some of the glorious things that this book reveals about Jesus Christ, our, the Savior and Lord whom we follow. He gave himself as a final sacrifice for sin. We looked at that text in Hebrews some two weeks ago when I was here. He gives us a clean conscience by his own precious blood. He died on the cross for our, our sins. He rose again in triumph. He ascended into heaven. And there he is our sympathetic high priest before God. He represents us and he intercedes for us in heaven. He has put his laws by means of his Holy Spirit, whom he has secured for us, in our minds, and he writes them on our hearts. That's the promise of the new covenant that you can read about in Hebrews chapter 8. It means that Christ has given us new desire and new powers to trust him and obey him. Christ remembers our sins no more. And in chapter 13, he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Now, these are doctrines of the person and work of Jesus Christ that, yes, the churches had to contend for, not just simply in the early centuries when they established those early creeds, but down through history on to this present day to safeguard the faith that we believe and confess, but it's also to make us into a certain kind of people. People who are willing to face, uh, to risk property, and perhaps even life itself in order to bring the love of Christ to others. People who are not trapped by our Western dream of just perhaps more money and leisure. People who know there is but one life to live in this world and only what is done in the name of Christ and for the good of others in the end will count. And so what verse 34 of chapter 10 really makes abundantly clear is that the way such a life comes about is by an unshakable hope in God beyond this life. I'll read 
verse 34 again of, uh, of Hebrews chapter uh, 10. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so the power to identify and stand with others despite the threat of persecution, the power to make joyful sacrifices in the pathway of love serving others, is, to, is based on the knowledge that you have better and lasting possessions beyond the grave. And if this knowledge is not first and foremost in your mind, this kind of eternal perspective, uh, this kind of faith in the eternal inheritance awaiting God's children, then you're going to be tempted to begrudge every sacrifice you make for others, whether it's time or money. You might become obsessed, as I find young people sometimes do, with how much you are losing out, how much others seem to be gaining on you and passing you by. But if you truly know that this life is but a brief preparation for eternal joy, as the writer puts it, for a better and an abiding possession, then you're free to use your possessions and even your life in this world to follow Christ and to serve one another. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is written to build us up in this kind of faith. And chapter 11 in particular is written to that end to give us examples of men and women who have, by faith, looked ahead to that future reward of eternal joy in the presence of God, so much so that it made a significant difference in their lives here and now. That's what chapter 11 is all about. It is meant to strengthen our trust in God's promise so that we turn from the fleeting pleasures of sin like Moses did in in verse 25 of, of chapter 11 and be willing to identify with the people of God and even to be willing to be mistreated with the people of God. So this morning I want to consider very briefly the example of Abraham. First of all, we see that he's a stranger in a foreign country. See that perhaps most clearly in verse 9. Some of you may be familiar with that Old Testament background. God called Abraham, and Abraham believed God. And Abraham's faith in God's promise of a future inheritance took him away from a comfortable, settled life in the city of Ur, there at the Uh, at the top of Mesopotamia, there in the fertile crescent of the Middle East, the relatively well-developed city in the ancient ancient years, roughly 2000 B.C. And Abraham's faith made him into a stranger in a foreign country. You remember that at the end of Abraham's life, the promised land was just that. It was still a promised land for Abraham. And yet to Abraham, that promise was so sure that he staked everything on it. Abraham and the other patriarchs who descended from him spoke about their lives as a pilgrimage. In In Genesis 23, Abraham, you might remember, is seeking to buy his first piece of property in the promised land. It's a cemetery plot for his beloved wife, Sarah. 
And in verse 4, he tells the locals, the Hittites who settled there, uh, whom he wants to purchase a plot of land for, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. And then towards the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 47, verse 9, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who appears before the Pharaoh of Egypt, speaks of his long life as the years of my literally uh, sojourning, but we could translate the years of my pilgrimage. And so the writer of Hebrews reflects upon, I think, these remarks of the patriarchs. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 11, for people who speak thus, they speak like that, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now, perhaps it's easy to see why Abraham, who lived in a tent all his life, once he left presumably a house there in Ur of Chaldees, uh, how he considered himself a pilgrim. He never settled down in one place in the land. But it's more than just that. Because Abraham understood the whole, the nature of the whole life as a believer in God as a pilgrimage. Because of the very nature of faith itself. Living by faith means that the heart is attached to something that is not here in this world. Faith rests in the promises of God that we have not yet seen. You remember the verse, that famous definition of faith in verse 1 of Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Some of us who are of a certain age might remember a, a, a TV commercial with a little jingle attached to it that said a certain kind of popular soft drink was the real thing. Some other items are described as the real thing. And of course, that is an overstatement. It's not the real thing. Nothing in this world is ultimately the real thing. The real things in God's universe are the things we can't see yet. It's not our house, or car, or job, or recreational pleasures, or hobbies. And these are all legitimate and even necessary things for us to, to live a life that God has called us to live in this world. But the real thing is Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews chapter 12, the following chapter, verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy of winning salvation for us moved the Lord Jesus to trust and obey his Father in heaven through the pilgrimage of his life, which was one of suffering uh, one of opposition and growing persecution, intensifying hostility, even enduring the shame of the cross in our place. But there's a second point for us to consider, and that is a better country. And that comes out clearly in verse 18 of our, or verse 16 of our text. I think we can also say the real thing is what the Lord Jesus is preparing for his people. 
He tells his disciples in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And according to verse 16 of Hebrews 11, that place is a better country. That is a heavenly one. That's what Abraham was ultimately looking for and waiting for. Verse 10 of our text, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And in chapter 12, verse 28 of Hebrews, that place is described as a kingdom that cannot be shaken. <clears throat> Perhaps you've, you've heard the old quote. I, I'm not sure who it originally came up with it, but it says simply, Christians are citizens of tomorrow's city living in today's society. Christians are citizens of tomorrow's city living in today's society. And Paul would remind us, the Apostle Paul reminds us in in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. And then he expands on that in Ephesians 2.19 where he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, that is, towards God, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christians put it in the singular, Christian, brother and sister, how often do you realize that is your true identity? Members of God's household, citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And so that's why Paul can say, he can exhort us in the words of Colossians 3, 1 through 4, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of earth. For you have died, and your life was hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We are no longer strangers and aliens towards God. Our identity is sons and daughters by adoption. But, but we are still pilgrims. In this world. And so Paul tells us to direct our thoughts, our desires, our affections, and out of those things flow our actions on heavenly things where Christ is, and where by faith we are already seated with Him. That's our position, and that's our true identity in Christ, although we know it is. Painfully at times, we know it is not yet fully realized. But that is our destiny. Now here I'm going to reveal something of my my checkered past, some of my my, uh, perhaps upbringing in various church circles. There was an old gospel chorus. It's probably classified as southern gospel, and I would not recommend inserting it into our corporate worship. But it speaks... It speaks of a a wonderful message. Some of you might remember it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me through heaven's open door. And then each stanza ends with that refrain, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. It speaks of this truth, although it doesn't speak of everything that might be said about it. If we've set our our mind on Christ and his kingdom, 
And we do that by daily filling ourselves with these many precious promises of God's word. Then there is inevitably going to be a deep-seated uneasiness and tension we feel in this world. Let me hasten to say, as Reformed Christians, we have a, a strong doctrine of creation. We believe that God, through his word of power, created this world and everything in it. And as his children, he has given us the right and the freedom and responsibility in Christ to enjoy all the lawful pleasures that God has given to us, food and clothing and shelter and recreation. And I will add music and and the fine arts, my wife and I and our daughter attended a, a, a marvelous lecture, an exhibition by a, an artist who is a Christian and who was a member of a church I serve. This was in a, a Milwaukee Art Gallery just on Friday. And it reminded me of, to give thanks for, for those who are gifted to see the perspective of God's creation in, in new and striking ways and have those, develop those, those gifts into a fine skill of portraying it. There's a place for that in this world. And as God gives us the strength and opportunity, we have the responsibility to work to provide for our needs and the needs of our family and to help others. He's given us a capacity to enjoy deep friendships and family relationships and all of the good gifts of God's creation. But all the while we enjoy and make use of these gifts With thanksgiving to him, we know that we do not derive our greatest satisfaction from any of these things. If we have the heart of Jesus Christ, we have compassion upon others. An offering is being collected in this congregation for the the victims of the the Hurricane Ida that swept through uh, the south and caused so much suffering, so much devastation. And that compassion begins with the household of faith, uh, the church. But then it also begins to extend to people of the world as we minister to their needs. But all the while, we remember that we are people on our way out of this world. Like Abraham, we are living in tents. And, And like Abraham, in verse 10, we're looking forward to the city that has foundations. It's not going to be affected by floods and hurricanes and earthquakes and wildfires, whose designer and builder is God. I would sometimes tell my African friends over there that when Americans go on vacation, sometimes they move out of their house and into a tent. And they're astonished because in Africa, tents are for one purpose, for housing refugees who've been driven, driven from their homes. And they would look at me in wonder and amazement and say, you move out of a house with electricity and running water and beds and sleep in a tent? You are not serious. Well, we are, but we're always glad, at least I am at my, this point in life, to get back to my bed in my house. You know, one of the sayings of the early church is, was this. The world is a bridge. The wise man will pass over it, but will not build his house on it. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. And we're destined for a city whose builder and designer is God. Therefore, Paul urges us in Philippians 3 to press on, forgetting what lies behind 
and straining forward to lies ahead. That leads me to our final point very briefly, and that is the difference this should make in our lives. What difference does it really make? Do we really believe these things? Does faith in God's word, in his promises of a future of glory, does it, does it really affect our thinking? Does it influence us? Are we beginning to order all of the activities of our, of our lives with these realities in mind? I remember a little brief anecdote, an English professor I had at a Christian college my wife and I attended. He and his wife had a, a house in the hills above Santa Barbara, California, not far from the campus. It was filled with books and music and painting and art. I don't think there was anything of any great value. After all, he was a, a living on a, on a salary of a Christian a college teacher. Uh, but there were things of beauty. And they would often use their home to host students for discussion groups and for meals. Well, as sometimes happens in California, one September the Santa Ana winds came up and a brush fire swept down from the canyon, the hills above their house, and the fire department ordered them to evacuate. And Professor Kingma, he relayed the story to us later, his students. He said to his wife, the Lord gave all these things to us, and he has the right to take them all away. And so they left their house, thinking they would never see it again. But as sometimes happens in those fires, those, those wildfires, uh, the fire parted just above their house and went around it on both sides and spared it. And the Lord graciously gave them their house back to them to use for a while longer. But first they had given it up to him. I think that's the kind of faith God calls us to. It's a faith like Abraham's. To be able to say with Abraham and others of faith, in verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What a sobering thought that is. That everything in this world, and it is a world despite the suffering and turmoil, nevertheless, that reflects something of the grandeur and glory and creativity of our, of our sovereign God. But everything in this world will either break or grow old or spoil or rust or fade away. Only God and his word is unchanging and endures forever. And we who are citizens of God's kingdom through faith in Christ, revealed in his word, will enter into that eternal city. Brothers and sisters, God calls us to a single-minded commitment to him. May we find that grace and strength in Christ to live each day by such faith and not waver. Let's pray. Father, we fall short. As we hear these words, our lives are so often occupied and preoccupied by the cares and concerns of each day. Many have jobs of great, uh, with great demand, professional demand placed upon them. Others may be concerned about their health, about family relationships, about finances, about the future. And yet, Father, we would learn to cast these cares upon you, to seek your face each day,
to meditate upon these precious promises, to grow strong in our faith and have our eyes of faith uh, focused upon that future, that glorious future revealed to us in your word, that even now our faithful Savior is preparing for those who love him. Help us, Lord, in our weakness and unbelief. We ask, O Lord, that you would nurture us through your word, and we would nourish us as we prepare to meet at your table. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.